Greetings and welcome to episode 59 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is Japanese film and the end of empire. Uh, Japanese film has become very famous throughout the world, but what I want to talk about specifically today is how the sorts of films that were made in the American occupation period, 1945 to 1952, and then in the immediate aftermath of that, um, relate to many of the themes that we've been talking about with the end of the Japanese empire, the major shifts the reverse courses, um, you know, questions of guilt, who's a victim, who is Japanese, all of these sorts of issues uh, all sort of play out on the screen. Um, and we'll take a talk about some uh, very obscure movies that, you know, almost no one other than scholars of film history, Japanese film history, would be aware of. And we'll also touch on some that are more famous. Uh, certainly, you've probably heard of Godzilla. We're going to talk a little bit about Godzilla. Um, yes, it's a fun action flick, but it is also... Uh, a, a, a film that is a product of its unique time and place. And if you haven't actually studied this from a scholarly perspective before, you might be surprised to see uh, how much the, the genesis of the idea of Godzilla and the plot lines of that first film in 1954 actually uh, are you know, directly linked to the issues of the atomic bomb in, that was dropped on Japan in 1945, ideas about the victimization narrative of the Japanese that got uh, constructed at that time period. Um, and then some of of you uh, may also have heard of a film that we'll talk about, Rashomon, um, which is also quite a famous Japanese film, although mainstream-wise, probably a little bit less known than something like Godzilla, which every single person and their dog has, has uh, heard about before. Now, let's start off with a couple of major bird's-eye perspective themes, all right? Post-war Japanese film, as it relates to the empire, needs to do a couple of things. It needs to explain uh, your defeat and the suffering. Okay, uh, why did we lose the war? Okay, uh, why are we suffering? Uh, you need to explain how we got here. Um, and then you also uh, are thinking about this old empire that you used to have. Many people either were in that empire, they, they lived there, they traveled there, they were tourists there, or even if they never left the Japanese home islands, they have some sort of knowledge and, and experience uh, of that empire. They heard about it, they saw pictures of it, it was talked about. Um, and so there is a sense that you can leverage this former imperial experience, sort of stripped of politics, stripped of the military, in what way can we still sort of re-experience the empire that we have only just lost, um, without the sense of guilt that everyone's trying to put on us now about what we did to the people who lived in our former colonies. Now remember, throughout, that the films we're talking about, they are intended for a domestic Japanese audience, so they are going to cater to a domestic Japanese audience that probably doesn't really care all that much about other people's suffering. Why? Because the Japanese are uniquely cold-hearted? No, because they suffered too. All right, something you have to be thinking about here at all times is that, you know, the experience of people who lived on Japan uh, is going to be different than most people who uh, stayed behind, let's say, in the uh, United States while soldiers went to war. You know, if you were an American during World War II and you didn't actually go to war, uh, you know, uh, active theater of battle as a soldier or something, um, if you stayed behind at home, yes, there were shortages of goods. Yes, there was rationing. Yes, you heard about the war, um, but generally speaking, your experience was quite different. The, the U.S. was not invaded 
There were no bombing raids of New York or Los Angeles or anything like that whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, things may have been tighter and tougher and whatnot, but it was nothing like the experience of countries that were actively had their homelands bombed. Um, and the Japanese, as we know, it's not just the atomic bomb, it's the fire bombing, uh, all this other stuff that's going on. Uh, life in the Japanese home islands and in many of the colonies, if they were a theater of war, could have been quite difficult. Uh, to survive through. And so many Japanese after the war, uh, their, their, their greatest sense of what's going on is, I suffered. Why did I suffer? Um, and maybe there's some vague sense that the other Asians suffered as well, but you're probably not being encouraged to link other Asian suffering to your suffering, to something that you did. Uh, it's just, well, we're all suffering because this horrible thing was visited upon us. How do we make sense of this? Um, and most people are not going to try to make sense of the suffering that's going on by blaming yourself. <laughs> All right, that's just human nature. We generally don't do that. Um, and so it's not, you know, saying anything, you know, casting a judgment on most Japanese uh, for saying that they're mostly concerned about their own suffering. That's completely natural. And remember, no one in this environment is going out of their way to encourage the Japanese to have sort of an act of introspection towards themselves. Why did you guys do this? You're responsible for suffering. Remember, that is not official policy after 1947 from the Americans who are occupying Japan, and it's not informal policy for any of the other countries, really, who are trying to curry favor with Japanese in order to undermine the U.S. occupation of Japan. All right. Um, now, you're trying to come to terms with what happened and the reality of the fact that the empire is gone, but not forgotten. It still exists in many people's minds. All right. Um, and but you're trying to negotiate your memories and loss and suffering uh, within the context of U U U.S. terms of censorship. All right. The U.S. Uh, imposes a censorship regime during its seven years of occupation. There are many things you cannot portray or put in the films. Um, and the U.S. also says that, you know, when you blame someone, you have to blame the militarists. All right. Remember, that's the official explanation of what went wrong. Your militarists sort of hijacked your peaceful government that was on track to become just like us. And those are the people who need to be blamed. All right. So there are certain parameters um, of what can and cannot be shown. Obviously, something that's going to be overtly critical of the Americans is probably not going to get through the censors either. All right. Uh, so post-war film has to come to terms with the causes of Japan's crushing defeat and, awful po and offer possible explanations as to why loyal imperial subjects were now suffering. Okay. The American occupation officials were eager to re-educate the Japanese as they saw it. They said, we're going to blame the militarists. We're going to disavow any militarist portrayals. Uh, you're not going to be allowed to show, uh, you know, Japanese soldiers and whatnot uh, conquering other lands or these sorts of things. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you can't actually show on film. Um, and they say, we also want to promote American-style democracy. But... You know, as with all censorship regimes, a lot of things get through the censors. Censors are not all-knowing, infallible people. They are flawed human beings, and oftentimes they don't catch everything. All right? Uh, I've been amazed in my own research when I do things relating to mainland China, um, in which I'm finding things that were published after 1949, uh, dealing with, you know, things that happened during the Mao Zedong years in the 1950s or 60s, and I'm thinking, the, this is an official publication. 
of a Chinese mainland archive in the 1990s. Did they not realize how unflattering the portrayal of Chinese government policies were in 1955 in this part of the country? How could this get through the censors? Uh, Things get through censors all the time. Uh, So I'm just trying to give you the general parameters of what might be allowed and not be allowed, but it doesn't mean that people won't still find a way to get past those censors. All right. Um, so you're going to get, uh, you know, uh, new ways of remembering the empire, essentially, and uh, remembering what happened during the war to explain why the Japanese people are suffering. Let's start with trying to explain how the Japanese people got here. Uh, famous director Akira Kurosawa. I have a wonderful quote from him in which he sort of recalled later on what he saw as the Japanese population's response to Emperor Hirohito's surrender speech. He said, quote, when I walked home after listening to the imperial proclamation, people on the shopping street were bustling about with cheerful faces as though preparing for a festival. I don't know whether this was a sign of Japanese adaptability or a fatal character flaw, but I had to accept that both of these sides were part of the Japanese character. Both sides exist within me as well. He's sort of talking about the realization here that life goes on for the survivors of the war. And we filmmakers need to make sense of that war and of the lost empire in the context of our lives now. All right, no one's going to be too interested in investing resources and trying to go back into debates of was this right or wrong at this time period. How do we make sense, positive sense of what happened for us now in 1946, in 1947, in 1950, looking ahead, not looking back? And when you think of it in that way, a lot of historical amnesia uh, is going to get uh, pulled in to these uh, new cinematic efforts. What is Japan now? Japan now are four Japanese home islands without its former extensive colonies and lots of daily suffering and efforts to just get by. The films after 1945 would routinely condemn the war, but they would never actually question the imperialist motivations that led to that war in the first place, because you're singling out individual militarists. You know, it's a vague, ambiguous category. Who are the militarists? They're just always sort of lurking in the background. The generals who have taken us on this course, and we can't do anything about it. All right? It's not the empire in general. It's not the clashing of two or three you know, global empires that are competing for the same resources. Uh, it's a few bad apples. So you get the earliest post-war films all attempting to explain the cause of the war. 1945, a film that has the title, Who Are the Criminals? Would blame wartime pol- uh, Japanese politicians for, quote, willingly deceiving the people. In 1946, you have a film called Enemy of the People that would blame heartless wartime factory managers and the Zaibatsu, family-run financial cabals, the pe- you know, uh, uh, people who have wealth and power, uh, who most people don't see in their daily lives. It's easy just in, this, in the abstract to blame these people. Questioning the culpability of the emperor was quickly prohibited by Douglas Douglas MacArthur and SCAP, the supreme commander of the Allied powers, that's the occupation authorities. In 1947, you had a documentary um, that was uh, uh, produced called The Japanese Tragedy, which condemned Japanese aggression in Asia and called for prosecuting Hirohito as a war criminal. Somehow, again, this got past the censors. This does happen. Uh, But it was withdrawn from theaters just one week after its release. This is not okay. You cannot uh, call for prosecuting Hirohito as a war criminal. He gets immunity. 
all right, with the emperor off limits and the empire out of sight. The causes of war are quite limited. I mean, beyond just a few bad eggs who steered us off course. And what went wrong becomes a very, very unsatisfying answer. The only satisfying answer from my perspective is the historian's answer. Nothing went wrong. <laughs> it's competing empires struggling to control the same resources and they eventually come into conflict with one another. Now, Japanese film critics allege that post-war Japanese felt almost no guilt about the empire and war. One post-war Japanese film critic said, quote, not only did the average Japanese at that time lack any sense of what invasion meant, they also had absolutely no sense of guilt. For the leaders of an island nation, imperialism was seen as the only way toward progress and material enrichment. Now, if that's true, if your average Japanese felt, you know, almost no guilt whatsoever about what happened in the war, uh, let's try to put that lack of guilt in context. One, that was official SCAP policy. That was the official policy of the American occupation, all right, and most other Asian nations uh, soon after the war ended, um, in which we're not going to force the Japanese to have a bunch of mea culpas to apologize for everything and feel sorry for themselves. Um, the, you know, the, the Germans would get a lot more of that. Uh, over in Europe at the exact same time period. It would actually be institutionalized in German, you know, grade school textbooks and whatnot. Uh, the Nazis were evil people. They did evil things. And it doesn't necessarily take root among the entire society. Uh, but nevertheless, there is an institutionalized effort in Germany uh, to have active reminders um, and, you know, have moral judgment about what the Germans did during World War II. Uh, that's not going to happen in Japan. And that's official, uh, you know, American occupation authority policy. All right. Two, another reason uh, that there may have been very little guilt among your average Japanese is because, like we said, uh, Japanese people did suffer. Okay, um, and it's something that often gets lost in these sort of black and white analyses of world events and history. You want to have victims and you want to have aggressors and you want to judge them. You know, this is a victim. We feel sorry for this person. We don't feel sorry for this person. Um, and uh, several times, uh, you probably remember in, in, in recent episodes when I'm talking about Japanese atrocities, I'm trying to show all perspectives and show how you can be an oppressor and a victim in the very same day. <laughs> All right, that is not necessarily a contradiction. Um, and, you know, we need to change our perspectives uh, depending on what's going on and who's doing what and, the, and, and, and what their motivations are. Japan's role as an aggressor for most people back home took a back seat to the everyday concerns of Japanese suffering itself. The empire was overseas and can't be seen in Japan until it comes in the form of returning soldiers, returning settlers, who then are immediately blamed for all the suffering. It's your fault that we had an atomic bomb dropped on us. Okay, it's your fault. Uh, we didn't have anything to do with that because we didn't go into the empire. So, two movies in 1950 uh, 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 suggested that Japan suffered just as much, if not more, than any other Asian nation. Uh, names of the film, Hear the Voices of the Sea, and another film known uh, uh, with the title of The Bells of Nagasaki. Both showed images of dead or horribly mutilated Japanese soldiers, a sight never before seen in, in uh, uh, Japan domestic media. 
you had censorship restrictions throughout the war, uh, in which you couldn't portray dead Japanese soldiers in war. Uh, you could only show them rushing into glorious battle and winning the war, but you couldn't actually see dead soldiers. Um, and these films both did that in 1950. Uh, they're not, you know, they're the censorship restrictions that you can't sort of show Japanese militarism in, in action in a positive light, uh, but dead Japanese soldiers isn't necessarily showing positive Japanese uh, military advances, okay? Um, now, you did have some other so-called victimization films uh, that would acknowledge other Asian suffering in the context of Japanese soldiers or Japanese who had traveled abroad, uh, but it, they wouldn't attribute any of that suffering to the Japanese presence, okay? In fact, they would usually suggest that Japan suffered together with other Asians, all right, and that both sides lost in the war. All right, you can almost sort of see how this is a, I don't know, I want to say perverse continuation, but an interesting evolution of the liberation of Asia from Western imperialism discourse. Uh, remember, the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere was all about uh, all of us Asians have suffered from Western imperialism, and as the most advanced Asian, the only Asian that can actually defeat the white people, uh, we're going to bring you all uh, to liberation. Right, but we all have suffered from this common affliction, and we're going to help you bring uh, bring you out of it. Um, and now you're getting the sense in the films that after Japan loses the war, um, we're still suffering together. Uh, we had to suffer initially because we suffered from the same affliction of Western imperialism, and now uh, we're also suffering again after the war. But it's not our fault. We're not the ones who brought this suffering on you. Uh, you can see this is a very indirect way of still managing to get around the censors and criticizing, uh, uh, you know, the Americans or who, you know, whoever else without actually saying their name. Every action is relative. Japan was wrong, but so was America. Isn't war terrible for everyone? War itself becomes demonized independent of any active agent of war. Okay, war just sort of rained upon us from the sky. And if you want to attribute an agent of war, well, there's still the Westerners. That was why we had to go to war in the first place, wasn't it? Other films also tried to explain where we've been um, and explicitly invoked the old empire, not just Japanese soldiers. Uh, two films, uh, Bengawan River and Woman of Shanghai. We'll talk a little bit about these. Um, cinematic representations of Japan's past Asian empire continued unabated throughout the U.S. occupation. All right, you still had films where the backdrop, even if they weren't literally filmed there, the backdrop was supposed to be uh, Manchuria, China, Indonesia, all right, Burma, uh, places that the Japanese had colonial control of for for you know a, 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 a long or short period of time. And the most common trope was one of the same ones that we saw prior to 1945. You'll see Japan leading men paired off uh, with Asian women who are their love interest in tragic love stories. And here now, of course, the Asian women are usually going to be played by Japanese actresses. They aren't supposed to be ethnically Japanese. You know, there's going to be a Japanese man falling in love with an Indonesian woman, and the Indonesian woman will be a Japanese actress who is dressing up uh, to look like what Japanese imagine uh, a Indonesian woman would look like. These stories usually involved a misunderstood uh, 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 Japanese uh, uh, character, usually a man, who was shown to suffer just like the natives did, all right, and he worked tirelessly for an unappreciative Asian population. 
All right. Usually what you would get is you would get a female native, whether she was Indonesian or Chinese, um, and her story would, would be told so that she grows up resenting the Japanese initially due to the suffering of herself or her family. Her brother was killed in a Japanese bombing raid. Uh, her family was all you know, killed or lost their jobs and had to flee. And then she was forced into prostitution to help support the family, something like that. And then she, you know, blames the Japanese for all the suffering that has been visited upon her. Uh, but then she encounters actual Japanese soldiers in individual context, not just sort of from a distance during wartime, um, and realizes that the Japanese soldiers are suffering as well. Everyone is suffering, not just us. And so you don't blame the Japanese specifically for the suffering that I'm undergoing. So one of the best examples of this is the film Bengawan River. Uh, 1951, uh, and it's set in the Indonesian island of Java just six years earlier, 1945. Um, and in this film, you get a Japanese uh, uh, a soldier who has deserted uh, his unit. He has deserted his unit, so he's going to be portrayed in a positive light already, right? This is someone who is trying to, to not be uh, enthralled to the bad, hated, evil militarists, and he is being pursued by the Japanese military police because he's a deserter, all right? He takes refuge. He eludes the Japanese military police who are trying to catch him and obviously execute him, most likely if they find him, as, as an example to other soldiers. Uh, he eludes them by taking refuge in an Indonesian village, all the Indonesians are played by Japanese actors, uh, dressed up like Indonesians, or what they think Indonesians look like and dress like. Um, and love, a love story emerges between the Japanese man and an Indonesian woman who originally resented the Japanese in the collective abstract sense because her brother had been killed during you know, the war. Uh, but now she becomes sort of a highly sexualized love interest of the Japanese soldier. Bengawan River also had best-selling songs uh, set to what the Japanese imagined Indonesian music sounded like with Japanese lyrics. Again, you know, local native music or what we think it sounds like. But the words are going to be Japanese because the audience is back home in Japan. Uh, we've seen this before. The last time we talked about uh, 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 film and uh, uh, cultural uh, adaptations and whatnot in the South Seas. Remember that? Uh, we talked about the adventures of Dankichi. We talked about that, that song, The Chieftain's Daughter. Remember The Chieftain's Daughter in the 1930s? Uh, Japanese lyrics, uh, but what was imagined to be exotic Micronesian Pacific island type of songs in which uh, Japanese men are imagining falling in love with a local princess, a local Polynesian princess. Um, and she, you know, they go off and headhunt during the day and whatnot and do their dances and everything and uh, wear very little clothes and somehow uh, love and sex develops between them. Uh, it also echoes themes from the adventures of Dankichi. Remember that that uh, uh, cartoon that we would, that we talked about during the episode on J Japan and Micronesia as well. Uh, the idea that Japanese soldiers just have to put on native dress and they can pass as the natives. Uh, in this film, at one point, you have dialogue from two Japanese soldiers in these rural Indonesian villages, um, and one of them is trying to dress up like a local Indonesian, and the other soldier says, "What the hell is that getup?" The other one says, "You don't think it looks good on me?" And he says, "You look great." He says, my uniform stands out. 
And the other guy says, they'll all take you for a native. Don't worry. Just put on, you know, a straw uh, 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 skirt, uh, a little garland around your head and whatnot. Take off your shirt, uh, uh, darken your skin a little bit, and you'll fit right in. Don't worry about it. Just like the adventures of Dankichi, some of these things persist in the post-war era. Uh, even when you don't have an active military presence down there anymore and it's not part of your empire. Uh, the other film, Woman of Shanghai, 1952. An example of a film that's trying to deal with the guilt associated or, or you know, potentially associated guilt of what you did in China, what your country did in China to the Chinese. Uh, but again, you're going to suggest that both sides suffered equally, so let's be friends again. We didn't cause your suffering, we also suffered side by side with you. And once again, you're going to get this played out uh, through a love story that stars a Japanese leading man falling in love with someone who is, uh, 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 you know, sort of labeled cinematically as a local uh, non-Japanese. But here we get a nice little twist. All right, let me explain Woman of Shanghai for you. It stars a Japanese actress who is playing a woman known uh, uh, named Li Li Li. <laughs> Wonderful name, right? Li Li Li. Uh, a Japanese, she is a Japanese orphan. All right, she, she was you know, of Japanese parentage, who nonetheless was raised by Chinese foster parents in China. Okay, she's in Shanghai. The Japanese come to Shanghai, as we know, and she falls in love with a Japanese lieutenant in a Shanghai nightclub. And then spies and espionage from all sides get mixed up into the plot. Um, loyalties are tested. And this woman, who is of Japanese ancestry but has been raised by Chinese parents as an orphan uh, and now is falling in love with a Japanese soldier, she's obviously going to be very conflicted about her identity. So, Li Li Li, this China-raised Japanese character in the film, at one point is asked, which country does she feel more loyalty for? Says, quote, and she, uh, she, she responds, quote, which do you love more, your natural or your adopted parents? I love Japan just the same as I love China. I love my Chinese friends. It's, it's not just something that one can logically explain. Oh, how I hate this war. All right, uh... Japan and China are both my homes. I love them both. My adoptive family and my real family. Okay? Uh, how I hate this war, making us choose between one and the other. Uh, you know, we're all Asians. <laughs> the ties that bind us are so much stronger than the, the things that, pu that, that pull us apart. China and Japan should be friends, and this character embodies that. And isn't the war just bad for everyone? The Japanese didn't cause the war. They're not causing the suffering. They're also suffering. We're all suffering, Japan and China. And her character embodies that. Now, in the end, Li 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 ends up condemned for execution for her spying activities. She's playing both sides. She's caught. And this is her last speech to her Japanese lover, the Japanese soldier that she's fallen in love with in Shanghai from jail. She says, quote, I'm not sad at all. I'm happy. You taught me about a homeland that I never knew. I have no regrets. Now I can die in China as a Chinese, embracing my homeland of Japan. Isn't that a wonderful line? Now I can die in China as a Chinese, embracing my homeland of Japan. That sounds like a line taken right out of an official pamphlet of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, but sort of shorn of the political gloss and explicit presence of the Japanese military abroad and sort of uh, remembered through rose-tinted glasses, right? Uh, we're all in this together. And some unseen horrible force sort of uh, rained misery upon all of us. 
And the film ends with her Japanese military lover being given the order to execute her, but he can't do it. I can't kill her. So he is also sentenced to be executed along with her, and they hold hands together as they're both executed by horrible militarists. Japan and China suffered together. As you can see, the characters holding hands together. Uh, the war was no one's fault, just common human misery. Now we'll take this uh, uh, point and extend it to the next film that I want to talk about. We have two more films to talk about, and then we'll be all done here today. Uh, both of these are significantly more famous than all the obscure films that I've been talking about uh, uh, so far. First one is Rashomon. Rashomon, released in 1950. All right. Um, you're going to see this idea of uh, the deflecting of blame, the idea that everyone's got their own story. Uh, so let's start, stop trying to apportion blame uh, and all just sort of move on because everyone's pretty awful. All right. So let's not sort of probe too deeply and ask any questions. Let's move on with our lives. Let's move on. Okay. That's the past. We need to deal with the future. Rashomon is usually discussed as the first transcendent global Japanese work of cinema. Okay, um, but what is usually ignored is the fact that it was made within the context of the Japan of the American occupation of Japan and the immediate aftermath of World War II. Uh, you can watch Rashomon as purely a wonderful work of art. It is a great film. All right, um, and if you know nothing about Japanese history, nothing about the context of 1950 when it was made, uh, you can just enjoy it as a masterpiece of cinema and storytelling. Okay, you can absolutely do that, uh, especially since it's a historical film. It's a period drama. Uh, it actually takes place during like the Tokugawa era or a long, long time ago, long before the arrival of Westerners in Japan. It's the traditional era. All right, people are in robes, they're samurais, uh, they fight with swords, this sort of thing. Um, and so when you're watching it, it's easy to sort of, hey, I want to watch some Japanese cinema. I want to expose myself to global culture and whatnot. Oh, Rashomon is, I hear this is a very famous, well-done film. You watch it, you know nothing about Japanese history, the Japanese empire, and you can just, you know, purely enjoy the storytelling and, uh, you know, what's going on in the film and have no idea of what else it might be speaking to in the context of its time. But that's what I'm here for. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to place Rashomon in 1950, five years after the war is over. What is Rashomon about? The opening image, uh, imagery and dialogue is very telling. All right, you have a woodcutter and a priest. The film opens up with the scene of a woodcutter and a priest, two men sitting under ruined gates, uh, the ruined city gates of Rashomon. This is a destroyed temple that they're right next to. And it's raining, all right? The weather's horrible. Uh, it's a bleak image, all right? It's a bleak backdrop. And the woodcutter and the priest are talking to each other. And they say, I've, one of them says, I've seen so many people dead, so many people killed like, in, killed like insects, okay? Um, and then they start telling about a story. They talk about stories of something that we saw before. All right, um, this is a horrific story. This is a horrific story. Another man joins them and says, I just witnessed a story so strange that it has destroyed my faith in the soul and all that is good, even worse than what we've just been, just been through. What have we just been through? Well, it's an apocalyptic scene that opens up the movie. It looks like the world has ended. This is Japan after 1945. 
All right, this isn't after some war in the 1600s in Japan, which you might imagine it is if you're just watching it and know nothing about the Japanese Empire. Uh, this is supposed to be an apocalyptic Japan after the 1950s, after the 19 after 1945. Okay, and they're talking about this story in which they witnessed a murder. They witnessed a murder, and one of them says, "Only one person murdered? Pfft, that's nothing at all." I've seen so many people killed like insects, so many dead bodies. One murder is nothing at all. Nevertheless, the story seems to be so strange, so compelling, so hard to believe, that when word gets out about this story, they're called to court to testify and say, what actually happened? And there they say, I had this, I witnessed this event. This guy says, I witnessed this event in which uh, a samurai and his wife were traveling through the mountains. And a local bandit, a famous bandit, uh, tricked the man into getting out of his carriage. Um, and then eventually this bandit managed to seduce the wife and kill the husband. And so someone's died. So the courts get involved and they have to investigate it. And they find the bandit. They bring him into the court. They find the woman, the wife. They bring her into court. And now they all are asked to give testimony, their version of the events that led to the death of the samurai. And so the majority of the film are these three characters, the bandit, Tojimari, his name is Tojimari, uh, the bandit's tale, he's, he's sort of in an open air court and he's giving his testimony of what happened, what he did. Then you get the samurai's wife, the woman's tale, she tells her story of what happened. Both these people are alive. Then you get the dead samurai. He's clearly been killed. We're not really sure how he was killed yet, but he's clearly been killed. Um, and the court uses sort of a spiritual intermediary, a shaman, um, and they summon up his spirit. This is obviously cinematic uh, fantasy. They summon up his spirit to give his testimony of how he was killed. All right. So the majority of the film is this narrative device in which three people who were involved in something fantastic, something horrible happened. Um, and each one of them is called upon to give their version of what happened. All right. Again, don't just enjoy this film for art's sake, for cinema's sake, for storytelling, you know, the art of storytelling. When you're thinking about everything I'm talking about here, and if you ever go see this film yourself, think about three different versions of what happened uh, to explain an awful occurrence in which death resulted. And everyone who witnessed it was shocked, or everyone who heard about what happened was shocked and depressed and lost their faith in humanity to think that humans could act like this. And then remember, this is 1950, five years after the end of the war. Uh, what, what is on people's minds in Japan when they're watching this? So the first tale, the bandit tale, Tojimari, what is, how does his story go? He says, uh, well, I saw the samurai and his wife traveling through the mountains, so I tricked the samurai into getting out of his carriage and looking at a collection of old swords left in the forest. And then I tied him up to a tree. All right, I found this old cache of swords, you know, in the forest. Um, and I thought, you know, he'll be, this will be a good excuse to get him to get off his horse and come over here and take a look at him and he'll be more vulnerable. Um, and then when I got him in a compromising position, I tied him up to a tree. Then I seduced his wife. And then his wife, after I seduced her, she begged me to enter into a duel with her husband. Because she says, you know, then one of you will die. And I won't have to live with the shame of knowing that two human beings, two men, know my shame. 
they witness my shame that I've had sex with two men. You're not allowed to do that. All right. This is Confucian, this is Confucian culture and ideas about female chastity. Um, a woman is uh, attached to one man for life. All right. Um, it says, you know, two men know my shame now. I can't live like that. You guys, uh, I beg you to, to, to uh, duel my husband. Uh, fight him now. Uh, he's tied up to a tree still. Uh, and he had to witness her being uh, seduced. Uh, seduced here, okay, not raped. Uh, his his version of the story is that she's seduced, because later it's going to be, uh, the other versions will say she's raped. Uh, the bandit says, I seduced her. And then they fight. So the bandit says, okay. And he has a very manly fight. He unties the samurai, and they have this fight, and both of them look great. That's a great fight. All right. Um, and both of them, you know, look like, oh, wow, they're good swordsmen. They know how to fight. Uh, but the bandit still wins. The bandit still wins. And he says, I, I'm, I want to kill you honorably because you fought so well. And then afterwards, the woman says that she'll go with him. All right. Or she had told him uh, that if you win the duel, I'll go with you. It's the law of the playground. All right. In his version, this was not rape. He seduced her. She was interested. And then she said, okay, as you know, honorable men, you now need uh, to uh, resolve this situation on your own. Uh, to make sure that you don't allow me to have two men in this world who know my shame. Okay, so that's his story. All right, he managed to trick the samurai. He's a bandit, so that's not shameful for him. That's you know shows how clever he is. Um, he managed to trick the samurai. He managed to get the lady, um, and he managed to win a, an honorable duel in which the fight pro progressed very admirably for both men. All right, from his perspective, from his value system as a bandit. Uh, he comes off looking great, right? This is what a bandit does. Trickery, duels, seducing the women. He's, he has it all. Then the woman is told to tell her tale in court. And she gives a very different version. She said, the bandit raped me and then fled. <laughs> that was it. This was another. He, he, he didn't seduce me. I wasn't interested. He raped me. Um, and I was unwilling. And then he fled. So I asked my husband to kill me, to avenge my shame, because I'm a good woman. I'm a chaste, proper woman. This is what a chaste woman should do. I said, kill me, because you were not able to stop this guy from raping me. But my husband looked at me coldly and refused to acknowledge my humanity. He looked at me like he didn't know me anymore. And it was so disturbing to see how my husband looked at me. After I had been raped, he realized that he saw me as damaged goods. It was, you know, a shame to him as well. And he did nothing. And then she says, I fainted. And when I woke up, my husband had killed himself with his dagger. And she says, me, of course, if my husband wasn't going to kill me, he's too cowardly to kill me. And he ended up killing himself instead. She said, well, of course, then I did what any chaste, proper woman would do. I tried to commit suicide. I tried to commit suicide many times by drowning myself in a pond, but ultimately I failed to succeed. All right, so you see her story portrays herself in the most positive light possible from her value system. According to the bandit's value system, he told a story that accorded well with his values and made him look like an awesome bandit. Her value system is that of a chaste wife in a Confucian society. And she says, of course, there's nothing willing about it. He didn't seduce me. He raped me, tied up my husband by uh, nefarious means. And then I tried to do what was right 
you know, having had the shame visited upon us, what was right was to have my husband kill me, to ask my husband to kill me. It's his right then to kill his wife. Uh, He wouldn't do it. My husband was too cowardly, so I had to do it myself. But unfortunately, I failed, which is why I'm still alive today. All right. From her perspective, everyone else is, is, you know, shameful, pathetic, except for her. And she portrays herself in the most positive light. And then finally, the dead samurai is summoned up through a spiritual intermediary and asked to tell his tale. And he said, and he's going to, if you're not, you know, if you're knowing how this is going to go yet, uh, obviously the samurai is going to give a version of the events that uh, make him look as good as possible. Uh, so it all starts out the same. Uh, you know, he's, he's tricked and whatnot, and his wife is raped. And then he says, after the rape, though, this is where things get interesting and start to accord with his value system as the samurai. He says, after the rape, my wife said that she's willing to go with the bandit anywhere. Just take me with you. Right? No devotion to her husband at all. Okay? Uh, no devotion to the husband at all. <clears throat> And in fact, not only that, she tells the bandit to kill her husband or else she couldn't leave. All right. Uh, so she's raped. Uh, from his point of view, the samurai's point of view, there's, it's not seduction. It's still got to be rape. Uh, because if it's seduction, then that means that she has actually some sort of desire to be with the bandit initially before he does anything. Uh, so it has to be rape because that shows that this is my wife and she had no interest initially in you. Uh, and rape sort of is overcoming my ability to uh, defend my, my, my wife. Um, and then after the rape, she then changes her mind and says, okay, I'll go with you anywhere. I'm, I'm with you now, uh, but I can't leave with my husband alive. Uh, you need to kill him. It's not you guys duel and see which one of you survives. Uh, it's kill my husband or I can't go with you. And the bandit's response, according to the samurai, is that even he is shocked at this wife's lack of devotion. He originally was going to take her probably with him uh, if he could, if he was the one in charge setting the terms. But the fact that she preemptively came up and said this, he's shocked too. And then the samurai is touched that the bandit recognizes the woman's infidelity. All right, The bandit uh, then asks the samurai, what do you want me to do with her? You go, do you want me to kill her? Because this is incredible how a woman can act like this to her husband after she's just been raped. Yeah, I raped your wife and I did this. Uh, but nevertheless, I can't believe how she's now responding to this injury against her. She's completely selling you out. And the samurai says, I was touched that the bandit recognizes my wife's injury to me. All right, The men are bonding over their hatred of the infidelity, the shamelessness the shamelessness of women, all right? And while they're bonding over how wretched this woman is, she escapes. So then the bandit frees the samurai. He's not interested in killing him, and the samurai kills himself honorably. All right, uh, I've been screwed over by everyone. Um, yes, we had this moment of sort of male bonding with the samurai, with, with the bandit. He then, uh, you know, recognized that, uh, we're the ones, uh, who have acted most honorably here. Um, and he let me, and, uh, you know, he let me go. And then I killed myself as a, you know, disgraced samurai who's been betrayed by his wife. Uh, you know, having seen all the things that went on here, uh, tied up by a bandit, uh, my wife is raped, all this sort of stuff. Um, He's going to kill himself. That's what uh, a samurai with honor should do. Then after these three stories are told, we get back to the original characters at the ruined gates, at the ruined temple. 
And the priest at the temple says, I can't bear to hear any more details. Man is too horrible. Mankind, human, humankind is too horrible. It says, even the demon of this temple has fled in fear of the ferocity of mankind. And then the final tale, the way the story ends, is that the woodcutter finally gives a confession. And he says, you know what? I actually witnessed everything, but I didn't say anything earlier. Uh, now let me tell you what I saw. And this is supposed to be like the objective account, the omniscient third-person narrator who saw everything. Okay? The woodcutter says, this is what really happened. I witnessed it from a distance. The bandit ended up begging the woman to marry him after what he had done. Okay? This is very shameful. It makes the bandit look really bad. He didn't seduce her. She wasn't interested. Um, and then afterwards, he begged her. Oh, please, 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 please come with me. Marry me. And he says the bandit then promised he's not going to be a bandit. He said, I'll be a merchant, demeaning merchant work to support you. All right. This directly contradicts the bandit's value system. It was seduction, right? Um, then he wins an honorable duel with the bandit. Okay. Um, you know, these are all things that look good from a bandit's perspective. Uh, here we're saying, no, the bandit, uh, you know, it was rape, and then he begged her to go with him. Well, no, how embarrassing, a man begging a woman. He says he's going to give up the bandit life, which is supposed to be this awesome sort of, you know, highwayman. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it up and work as a merchant to support you. If only you'll come with me. What a pathetic man. What a pathetic bandit, at least. And then her, she responds, I'm just a woman. I can't decide anything. Looks terrible for her, too. She's supposed to commit suicide or order her husband to kill her. Not, I don't have any, you know, way to solve this. So then what she actually ends up saying is that real men would fight each other to resolve this situation. Not fight for my honor, fight to uh, hide my shame or kill my husband so I'll go with you. She says real men would fight each other. She goads the men on to fight each other, although they don't initially want to fight each other. And then they do fight. She sort of, you know, shames them. Fight. And they do. And we get another fight sequence. Remember, the first fight sequence was wonderful. They looked like they were awesome, you know, warriors. It was full of valor and near misses. And, you know, they both looked really good before one guy won the battle. Here, during this battle, they're both pathetic. They're terrible, cowardly fighters. Very timid and tentative. Uh, afraid to hit, to, you know, to sort of thrust forward, uh, afraid that they might get hit. Uh, when they think they've been hit, they practically shudder out and cry out, oh my God, all right? They're total cowards. They have no skill whatsoever in fighting. And then finally, the samurai loses almost accidentally. Uh, the way the bandit wins is almost by accident. He didn't really earn it by his skill. And the samurai pleads for his life before dying. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. So dishonorable for a samurai. That's the real story. That's the real story. So how do you make sense of this in 1950? Well, the real conclusion is that everyone's got their own side of the story. Okay? Um, and yet in the end, we find that despite each narrator telling a story that makes their side look the best, it, it quits them well. Whatever I did was the most honorable, best thing to do. We learn that the fight actually occurred over simple greed and lust. There were no honorable intentions on any side. When the fight actually happened, it was pathetic 
and dishonorable, fought by cowardly men who didn't really want to fight in the first place. The woman was petty, disloyal to the men around her. The samurai was unable to defend his wife, uh, was cold towards her, and begged for his life. The woman screams out in horror, even though she wanted to see the two men fight when the fight actually occurs. She screams out in horror at what's going on. Everyone looks horrible. Finally, there's supposed to be a positive message at the end of the story. The woodcutter finds an orphan baby, uh, takes the orphan baby away to adopt, and walks off into the distance as the rain stops and the sun breaks through the clouds. All right, there's hope for the next generation. Our lives are ruined. The cities we're in are ruined. We've witnessed the horrible actions of humankind. All right, the things that we do to each other. Um, but, you know, let's take the next generation forward and move on from all of this. Now, there's a couple ways of interpreting all of this. All right. One of them, if you focus mostly on the different stories, how everyone tells a story that casts themselves in the most favorable light, you could be saying that, you know, everything's relative. We all suffered. All of us have our own versions of events. You can't really find what version of events is true. Because in the end, there is no omniscient third-person narrator like that woodcutter who saw everything. Uh, in reality, there is no omniscient, infallible narrator who can give us an objective view of what happened. Um, and so everyone has their own story of what happened. And so how can you blame the Japanese? How can you single out any individual person in the Japanese empire and say it's your fault? Uh, you know, let's say the bandit, if you want to say the bandit represents the Japanese, um, you know, military or the samurai represents the Japanese military. Uh, they, they'll, they'll, they'll tell their version that makes them look best. Um, but then we'll find out that they lied also. But then the person who exposes their lying also lied to make themselves look best. So who do you trust? Ultimately, the movie seems to be suggesting that in the absence of an infallible, omniscient, third-person narrator who gives you the objective, this is what happened, uh, version of events, which doesn't exist, that is, there is no such thing, uh, you'll never get at the truth. Everyone acted dishonorably. When it, No one wanted to fight. When it came time to fight, we all were cowards. It wasn't valor. We didn't die saying long live the emperor and, you know, look great as we look in the movies. Uh, we died in a very embarrassing fashion. The original motives were all just selfish greed. Um, no one had noble motives. No one acquits themselves well in the end. So let's just try to reconstruct things, go off into the future. The sun now is shining through the clouds. Take the baby and uh, raise the next generation well. But you're not going to get at an answer of who's to blame. All right, that's one way of thinking about the film in the context of 1950. Uh, these things are on the minds of the Japanese audiences. Yes, you can watch this film and just say, wow, cinematic masterpiece of the art of storytelling um, and narration. Um, or you can put it in the context of the American occupation, the end of World War II, who's to blame for what just happened, with, you know, the apocalyptic world that we now live in, how do you explain this, whose fault is it, um, and you can conclude that one message of the film uh, is to reassure viewers 
that, uh, you know, no one has a monopoly on truth and everyone is subjective and uh, will make themselves look as good as possible. Um, so, you know what, we're not going to get at the truth of what actually happened. Let's move forward um, into the future and make sure that future generations are going to live better lives. Now, Godzilla, 1954, four years later. Okay, uh, Godzilla. Monster movies were the first Japanese cultural product to be exported globally after the war to mass audiences. All right, Rashomon was known, but it's more of an art house film outside of Japan. All right, if you were to see Rashomon in 1950 in Los Angeles, it probably wasn't you know a marquee screening uh, along with you know major Hollywood movies. All right, it's a critic's pick. It's an art house film, not Godzilla. All right, Godzilla is something that you know is for the masses. It appeals to everyone. Okay, um, and then think about now when we talk about Godzilla, let's, let, let's set this general scene of Japanese horror films and monster films. The larger post-war cinematic context is that besides Godzilla, you have 15 other films produced in Japan by 1975 um, that are basically monster apocalyptic horror films. Uh, Godzilla is the most famous of all the monsters who destroy Tokyo, but you have other ones, Mothra, Gamera. He has a lot of monster friends uh, who also systematically come in and destroy Japan. All right, so this becomes some sort of a consistent, perhaps odd fixation of the Japanese. It's not like they're the only ones who have horror films or science fiction films, um, but they seem to be uniquely obsessed with monsters coming out of you know, the prehistoric mists of the oceans, of the mountains, and having a desire to destroy Tokyo. This is a recurrent motif. Why? All right. Again, Godzilla is much more than just an awesome monster film. And it actually, you know, actually holds up quite well. When I watched this a few years ago for the first time in a long time, I was thought, wow, for 1954 film, this ain't bad. All right. Uh, the Godzilla uh, director of Godzilla, Honda Ishii, uh, Ishiro was a soldier in China. He was a Japanese soldier posted to China. And he passed through Hiroshima during the process of being sent back to Japan, uh, the process of repatriation, sending back Japanese soldiers and settlers to the Japanese islands. All right. He passed through the devastated atomic bomb-stricken city of Hiroshima. All right. Um, and he saw the devastation there. And he worked this into the films that he was going to be interested in. And we can see here uh, the beginning of a uniquely Japanese cultural obsession with apocalypse and Armageddon scenarios. And you might say this is a unique legacy of being the only nation to ever suffer urban atomic attacks that were aimed to kill large numbers of civilians. Okay, so, uh, you know, long before... CGI and special effects enabled Hollywood to blow up the White House and blow up the Golden Gate Bridge and all these action films that we now have on a regular basis. Now, long before Hollywood was able to do this on a convincing scale, Tokyo, uh, you know, as early as 1954 with Godzilla, had already fallen victim to earthquakes, tidal waves, fires, floods, cyclones, volcanoes, alien invasions, supernatural curses, viruses, toxic pollution, all kinds of giant monsters, robots, blobs, and every imaginable form of nuclear explosion. All right, there's more to this than just Godzilla. Godzilla is representative of a larger uh, cultural response and obsession to the trauma of being hit by a nuclear bomb 
that no one else in the world experiences, at least not on this scale. Yes, there's some Pacific Islanders who will suffer from radiation effects, some people who tested the bombs in the deserts of Nevada and whatnot in New Mexico uh, who will say, hey, I suffered from radiation effects when we did this test of this uh, uh, bomb, uh, but nothing like Japan, you know, hundreds of thousands of people exposed or killed. Uh, as a result of an atomic bomb being deliberately dropped on a population center. All right, that is a unique trauma. And as we'll see, it's a unique trauma that will help facilitate and help enable the victimization narrative we suffered. And one thing I want you to think about is if you didn't drop the atomic bomb, if you if the U.S. had found some way to uh, 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 bring about Japanese surrender without dropping an atomic bomb on any Japanese city, would the victimization narrative have been so easy to construct for the Japanese after the war? Right? If they didn't have easy resort to, well, look what you did, this you know fantastic you know you know thing that you you blew up in two entire cities. Everyone knows this. Okay, uh, clearly, how can you argue with the fact that we're victims? Look what you did to us. The atomic bombs here have the, the end, end effect of sort of overshadowing all the other things that the Japanese did themselves throughout Asia during the 50 years of the empire, and especially the, the years of the war in China and the rest of, uh, of Asia. Uh, it becomes sort of a smokescreen, an easy uh, uh, defense against charges that you made other people suffer. Uh, well, nothing trumps an atomic bomb dropped on your city, does it? Yeah, not really. That's tough to argue with. And it has the effect of giving you an easy out. Even if you didn't suffer from the atomic bomb, even if you were you know, far away from the bomb and you suffered no direct effects of it whatsoever in, in the Japanese home islands. I mean, in the end, it is only two cities. It's not every, the entire all four islands, every square inch. Uh, it still allows everyone to have this narrative that we suffered more than anyone else. So you, you should feel sorry for us, not blame us for what happened during World War II. We didn't drop an atomic bomb on anyone. So where do we see the legacy of the atomic bomb in Godzilla? Uh, well, it opens up with fishermen on the Pacific Ocean seeing a blinding light off in the distance. All right, blinding light. This is what you saw in uh, survivor accounts of Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped. Uh, we saw a blinding light and then nothing else. And that was the, the uh, you know, experience we had of the bomb. And then if we survived, we woke up with skin, you know, skin peeling and melting away from our body. All right. Godzilla opens up with a blinding flash of light. There's no a a a a ambiguity here about what this means. This is a reference to an atomic bomb or its equivalent. Okay. Uh, the atom the uh, blinding light even though it's not explicitly referred to as an atomic bomb, uh, in the background, the assumption is, you know, this is the Americans testing a nuclear bomb, probably, which the Americans were doing at this time period in, in various parts of the, of the Pacific. They were testing nuclear bombs. And it is plausible that a Japanese fishing boat could have seen a blinding flash off in the distance. That's not made up. It is plausible for a, for a plot context of a film. Now, Godzilla will be awakened by this nuclear testing that the Americans, even if they're not being, you know, deliberately, uh, uh, directly blamed for this nuclear testing, they're not actually saying the Americans are testing a bomb. Uh, obviously, you know, they're the ones who are doing this. Your experience with bombs being dropped on you was from the Americans. So they're clearly going to be, you know, subtly associated with this. Um, Godzilla is awakened by this. He's not a product of nuclear energy. This isn't like a lot of those Marvel comic books in which, you know, or, you know, this you know, radioactive man or these sorts of things. Um, Godzilla is an ancient monster from the distant prehistoric past. 
uh, who you know lived in the depths, I think, of some underground cave on a Pacific island. And the nuclear tests awaken him. They do not create him. They awaken him from his slumber. So he is a monstrosity unleashed by nuclear energy. And he himself then will radiate nuclear energy from his scales. All right. When I have my students read some of the eyewitness survivor accounts of the bombs in Hiroshima and whatnot, one of them says one of the most memorable, vivid descriptions is that uh, one person who hadn't seen what they looked like, they hadn't gotten a mirror yet uh, after they survived it, they saw someone else. And the first person's first response was that you look like a monster. You look like a monster after you survive the effects of an atomic bomb. All right, this idea that the uh, collectively the Japanese nation has aspects of um, you know inner monstrosity that they have to live with now as a result of having been bombed with nuclear energy. All right, this is going to resonate with the idea that Godzilla is awakened, that this monstrosity that afflicts Japan is awakened by American nuclear energy testing. All right, this is a direct result of survivors talking about, you know, we felt there was something monstrous about us as a result of having survived this atomic attack. Uh, and here is a film saying here is a monster who has, uh, uh, you know, who, who has been awakened as a result of an atomic attack. And now this thing is attacking Japan. Okay. Imagine the impact of these scenes. Uh, in which when Godzilla eventually approaches Japan and they have these scenes of, of uh, Godzilla destroying, destroying the streets of Tokyo, coming in and breathing fire and crushing everything in his wake. All right, imagine the scenes of that in 1954 for a domestic audience. These people survived firebombing. Even if you didn't have direct uh, uh, experience of the nuclear bombs, um, you you had probably experienced firebombing of your city in one form or another. Uh, Godzilla is not just representative of nuclear energy. He's, he's representative of the nuclear attack and fire attack, which is what the firebombing of Japanese cities were. Uh, you know, it's important to understand he's not just, you know, oozes radioactivity. He shoots fire from his mouth and burns up Tokyo. All right, this is going to be like, you know, I remember back after September 11th, there was a film, United 93, uh, that uh, director Paul Greengrass had made, um, you know, uh, I think it was in 2005 or 2007, I think it was 2005. And at the time, people were saying, you know, United 93, it was a dramatization and reenactment of the film of the fourth plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. Um, and there, you know, there was so much criticism of this film saying this is way too early. This is way too early. We're still processing the trauma, the collective national trauma of September 11th. And you're making a film, a dramatization about this that's gonna you know cost money that people pay for and it got heavily criticized this is way too soon all right think of a similar thing uh with godzilla 1954 this is just nine years after the atomic bomb and uh, extensive firebombing of these cities uh less than 10 years later uh Japan japanese audiences are are watching films that relive this for them yes it's science fiction um, but it's science fiction that hits very close to home and would absolutely resonate in a very personal way with most Japanese who saw this. So then most of the film then, we don't have to go over the whole film, most of the film, after the monster is awakened and he comes out of the ocean and uh, uh, starts attacking Tokyo, the debate among the major characters are how are we going to meet this new and terrible threat? All right. Um, and you've got a couple of people. One camp, I think it's a professor, says, uh, you know, we don't, we don't want to kill Godzilla. We, we need to understand it. Why? 
Because in a post-nuclear world in which the atomic energy is uh, an ever-present reality we have to live with, we Japanese need to understand how Godzilla survived a nuclear attack. In this sense, Godzilla is also a survivor of a nuclear attack. Don't you love that irony? He's not just a monster who destroys us. He himself is a survivor of an American nuclear attack. And we need to understand how he survived it so we can uh, uh, survive the same because we've also been a victim of uh, a recipient of an American heartless nuclear attack. And then on the other side, you've got this one-eyed mad scientist uh, named Serizawa. And he's come up with a new weapon, a new weapon that uh, he believes might potentially be the only thing that's capable of killing Godzilla. It's called an oxygen, an oxygen destroyer. It disintegrates oxygen atoms and leads to death by asphyxiation. All right. It doesn't really matter what the details are. It's a, uh, it, it's a terrible new weapon that the world has never seen that could have grave consequences. Um, and you know, you know it's terrible if it's the only thing capable of, of, of killing Godzilla. A nuclear bomb didn't kill him. He survived it. So he's, it's going to be tough to kill Godzilla. This is something that could actually kill him. And the scientist has this moral dilemma as to whether or not we're going to use my, oxy, my oxygen destroyer to kill Godzilla. Ultimately, he does. But it is a wrenching decision for the mad scientist to use his new terrible weapon uh, to kill Godzilla. And he only does it after Tokyo is nearly destroyed. All right, remember, defensive imperialism. We had to do it, all right? And we had no choice. We had an enemy that was willing to resort to immoral, unconscionable means of waging war on defensive, innocent civilians. And look what they did to our cities, all right? Both Godzilla and the destruction that he wreaks on Tokyo, these are symbols of what America did to Japan, both the fire symbol and the nuclear bomb symbol. Okay, And Japan has to come to a decision. Are we going to stoop down to the level of the Americans to save ourselves? And they have this you know, moral debate that lasts the majority of the film is whether or not we're actually going to do what the Americans did. We're going to use a terrible new weapon in order to negate their terrible new weapon, what they've unleashed into the world. And only when we're almost totally destroyed do they decide we have to do it. That's like the firebombing. We have to do it. We have no choice. Okay, but the guy who invents the oxygen destroyer then takes the secret of it to his own grave. All right, he dies and takes it with him so no one else can do it. Essentially saying we're not going to start an arms race. Yes, we had to come up with our equivalent of a nuclear bomb, a terrible, horrible new weapon with potential to destroy life as we know it. But we only used it to negate what you did, what you unleashed with your nuclear bombs. And you unleashed them on Japan. In order to save ourselves, we had to come up with a one-time, one-off solution to this problem. And it was an equally terrible weapon. But then we're not going to continue this weapon. We're going to, you know, we, we, were, we have the moral high ground. We took this weapon to our grave. All right. You can see how Godzilla, surprisingly, for this, you know, apocalyptic science fiction monster flick, is actually dealing with some pretty heavy themes and has some sophisticated political commentary. Okay? Uh, when you, if, you, if you watch the original 1954 version of Godzilla, known as Gojira in Japanese, uh, notice every single time 
that the characters talk about Godzilla, you know, in the dialogue. The name Godzilla appears in the dialogue. Oh, we can't kill Godzilla. Godzilla keeps coming back. We need our own defensive weapon to kill Godzilla or he'll destroy Tokyo. Try replacing Godzilla with the word America and see what that does. And you'll realize that almost every single time you can replace the word Godzilla with America or the Americans. Um, and it would actually have a chilling historical resonance with the perception of victimization and suffering that many Japanese uh, rightly have. They were victims and they suffered and the war wasn't their fault. But then also deliberate self-deception on the parts of many of them, aided by those who were in power who basically lacked, did not put in place any incentives to confront what happened, rightly or wrongly. And so you get the rise of this victimization narrative in Japan, and Godzilla is actually your cinematic embodiment of the uh, Japanese victimization narrative that trumps the victimization narrative, that negates the victimization narrative of other Asians, that overshadows them. Okay, mistakes were made in war. You had a little bit of violence and bloodshed in Nanjing, some comfort women and whatnot. Sorry about that, but look what we had to suffer. This is what we were really fighting against all along, was the white people who use immoral means, whatever they have to, to dominate the world. And if we ever got the chance, we wouldn't be as immoral as them. We would do it right. We would get rid of our weapon after we used it to, to, to negate a great evil. So think about this. If the Japanese surrender had been achieved without the use of atomic bombs, would the Japanese have had recourse to such a dramatic victimization narrative that oftentimes would serve to overshadow the victimization narratives of everyone else who was involved in the Japanese empire or World War II in Asia? All right. You'll also get another thing, which we'll talk about a little bit next time in our next topic. Um, Godzilla uh, and the idea of uh, this victimization narrative of, uh, of the post-war Japanese being associated with atomic bomb being dropped on them. That becomes the focal point of what, of what gets talked about. Um, that will end up excluding the Japanese who were in the colonies. The millions of people that came back to Japan after 1945, whatever suffering you encountered is not legitimate. That's not part of the official narrative of Japanese national suffering. Only the place where the atomic bombs were dropped, the four home islands, only those places, the people who live in the home islands, can claim that narrative of victimization. Our chief narrative of victimization was having these nuclear bombs dropped on us. If you weren't here in the home islands, what becomes Japan after 1945, if you weren't here, you don't get to be a part of that victimization narrative. In fact, you're the opposite. You represent everything bad that happened during the empire because everything bad that happened in the empire was in the colonies and you were in the colonies, therefore you caused all the problems, and that led to the, the dropping of these atomic bombs on the home islands. You're not the victim. Only Japanese who are in the home islands are the victims. It's another way of writing out the colonies of the Japanese national historical narrative of the 20th century. The colonies were illegitimate. The colonies are what the militarists did. And we on the home islands are totally innocent. We didn't do anything. Stop blaming us for the war. And why should you stop blaming us for the war? The most visible symbol of that is the atomic bomb and the suffering that we went through, which gets worked into popular cinematic representations such as Godzilla. 
All right, Rashomon, you can't know what actually happened. Godzilla, we suffered more than anyone else did. You can see how these famous Japanese films are, you know, have so many more levels to be understood when you put them in the context of post-war Japan and the empire. All right, next time. Note how Godzilla was cooked up by a former Japanese soldier who returned to Japan from the war zone in the colonies. All right, and he saw the devastation of what happened in the battlegrounds of, of Asia. He also saw the devastation of Hiroshima. To many Japanese who went to the empire, however, and then were told to come back to Japan, Japan wasn't home. And their life in the colonies was just as much a part of the so-called Japanese experience as anything that happened in Japan. All right? To them, there wasn't this you know, huge separation. The Japanese nation has expanded. This is Japan now. And yet, nevertheless, they get told to go home now, to a home that many of them never knew. All right? These men and women who lived outside of the Japanese island in the colonies... They would have disputed the Godzilla victimization narrative that only legitimated the suffering of the home four islands and confined suffering claims to those who experienced the atomic bomb. So let's understand how we got our current definition of Japan, the Japanese, who is allowed to call themselves the Japanese and who is not, and who's allowed to say, I suffered during the war and who is not. Please join me for sending the Japanese home with home in quotation marks in episode 60 of Beyond Huaxia.